1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. This is Morteza Hajizadeh, your host from Critical Theory Channel. Today I'm honored to be speaking to Professor Manfred Stechner. Uh, Dr. Manfred Stegner is a professor of sociology and social theory at the Department of Sociology at the University of Hawaii. He's here to talk with us about a great book he published with Oxford University Press called New Liberalism, a very short introduction. This is the second edition of the book uh, published, uh, I think, in 2021. The first edition was published in 2010. Uh, Manfred, welcome to New Books Network.
0: Uh, Thank you, Martiza. Thanks for having me. I'm delighted to be here.
1: Thank you. Um, Before we start talking about the book, can you please introduce yourself and talk about your field of studies?
0: Of course. Uh, My name is Manfred Steger. I'm a professor of sociology, as you mentioned, at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. Uh, but I'm uh, actually cutting across uh, various disciplines in the humanities and social sciences in terms of my Ph.D., uh, which was in political science from Rutgers University. But I'm also one of the pioneers of this new growing trans- transdisciplinary field of global studies. I've also done a fair amount of uh, historical approaches. So. I really see myself uh, broadly as a, a social theorist, a political theorist and and social scientist.
1: Uh, new liberalism, a very short introduction, a fascinating topic. It's something everybody's talking about, but people rarely have a definition. Uh, but let t- tell us how the book came about and I'm really interested to know what is in the new edition, what has been added to the book in the new edition.
0: Well, the book really came about as a result of my work on ideologies of globalization which I call globalisms. So uh, my argument was that the old ideologies like socialism and conservatism and neoliberalism uh, over the last few decades have been really globalized and changed, transformed uh, from isms that were connected to nations or nationalisms, much more towards uh, sort of global ideologies. That's why I call them globalisms and the dominant one I call market globalism. And I fairly soon realized that at the very core of this ideology of market globalism was what everybody knows as neoliberalism, sort of an economic uh, uh, DNA uh, that in many ways defined uh, market globalism. So I said to myself, it might be a really good idea to actually do a separate study on neoliberalism uh, which is what my co-author, Ravi Roy, who teaches at Southern U- Utah University, and I decided to do back in uh, 2009. And uh, at that time it was right, uh, as you remember, right uh, in the middle of the global financial crisis, when neoliberalism really got a major shock, probably the biggest shock uh, since since it came about in the 1980s. Uh, and then, uh, uh, you know, 10 years later, uh, was a second shock uh, delivered by uh, Brexit, delivered by Donald Trump, delivered by the forces of national populism, who were very anti-trade, as you know. So it was clear that uh, a second edition was needed to account for what had expired between uh, and transpired between uh, these last 10 years from the global financial crisis to, uh, you know, the rise of populism.
1: Uh, let us start with some definitions have liberalism and the new but they are quite different. So, a lot of people might think that, well, new liberalism is just a newer version of liberalism, but they're quite different. So, can you tell us what is liberalism and how is it relevant or related to neoliberalism? liberalism? Well,
0: neoliberalism is related to li- liberalism, there's no question. But liberalism is really a 19th century doctrine. Some people say it actually goes back to, to the 18th century, to the Enlightenment. Uh, the idea that uh, the state government should not really interfere with uh, the economy, that individuals should be free to engage in economic interactions with each other uh, without state interference, that economic freedom is at the very core uh, of political freedom. In other words, you can't be a free human being if you don't have economic freedom, if the state interferes. And uh, liberalism in the 19th century also was very strongly connected to individualism and rationalism. The idea that we behave in a rational way, uh, especially when we are what's called the homo economicus in Latin, uh, right? The economic human being, meaning when we barter, when we trade, when we engage in economic interactions, we are rational. Uh, We act according to the laws of demand and supply. And that again, linked to the idea that the Enlightenment was really very much pushing, which is against tradition, against aristocracy, against arbitrary rule, and in favor of individual rationalism, freedom, and particularly economic freedom. So that was the foundation, the liberalism of the 19th century. But what happened in the 20th century is that uh, liberals actually changed their attitude towards the state and increasingly realized that states are necessary. As a matter of fact, you can't really have markets without states, you can't have a rational society with at least some state input. So uh, under uh, economists that uh, I think are you know fairly well known, like John Maynard Keynes in the 20th century, uh, what we are getting is liberalism changing into a doctrine that still emphasizes individual freedom and rationalism, but argues that state have to play a major role in the economy, especially when times are bad. And obviously, uh, John Maynard Keynes was writing in the 1930s at the height of the Great Depression. And his argument was that states actually needed to, uh, when uh, there was an economic crisis and economic depression, states needed to really uh, push, invest in the economy. They had a very important function in terms of providing jobs, providing funds to get the economy going uh, you know, back to uh, its normal functioning. So liberals became, you could argue, no longer laissez-faire, let you know, uh, individuals be uh, economic beings without the state, and move to sort of a mixture. That's why sometimes it's called mixed economy of state and uh, individual uh, type of activity. And then uh, after World War uh, II is when for 30 years, this sort of doctrine of mixed economy became really, really enshrined uh, in uh, certainly in the West, but in other parts of the world as well. So the idea that we have a mixed economy, the state has to provide social services, the state has economic functions, but the liberals, uh, but individuals should also be free to interact with each other became really the dominant doctrine. And that all came to an end in the 1970s. This is where our story really begins. In the 1970s, uh, we experienced another major recession. Uh, you know, we all, some of us who are old enough, remember the oil shocks oh, of the 1970s. Oh, oh. We remember uh, stagflation, the word, uh, very funny word, right? Uh, uh, basically, stagnation and inflation, in other words, uh, very high unemployment and very, very high inflation coming together, and something was no longer going right with uh, this mixed economy. And uh, there were then people who, uh, you know, had already been pretty well-known economists who said, we need a new type of liberalism, neoliberalism, coming out of the 1970s. Mm. Uh, Hayek, August Hayek, uh, was one of them. Milton was a, Friedman was another one. And their idea of neoliberalism was picked up then by uh, politicians like Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher. And that's when neoliberalism really became the dominant doctrine in the 1980s. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, I, I want to ask about some features of neoliberalism, but because you just mentioned Hayek, I'd like to ask about how neoliberalism's main principles were formulated by by the society, if I'm pronouncing the name correctly, Mont uh, Pelerin Society, how the main principles were formulated by that. So what was that society? Can you tell us more about that?
0: That society uh, called Mont Pelerin Society was uh, founded in Mont Pelerin, which is a a, a town in Switzerland, a very nice town in Switzerland. Uh, And uh, it was founded in 1947, right after World War II. Uh, And basically, it brought together uh, academics, uh, economists, business people uh, who were not too happy uh, with, uh, you know, the sort of Keynesian mixed economy approach. And we're already at that time thinking about ways in which uh, markets could be a sort of, as they saw it, liberated again from, from, as they saw it, state interference. And one of their major concerns was that they felt that state control of the economy, even if it was in this sort of mixed economy, would inevitably lead to totalitarian regimes. Either totalitarian regimes on the left, as it was happening in the Soviet Union under Stalin, who was still alive at the time in 1947, or totalitarian regimes on the right, as in Germany and in Italy under Hitler and Mussolini, where the state basically would not just take over the economy, but ultimately squash human freedom. So for them, the basic idea was that markets needed to be free to work, to do their thing. They were self-regulating and the state had to be taken off the back of the economy. Otherwise, human freedom would be lost. So that was the sort of basic idea of this Mont Pelerin Society in 1947. But as I just said, for many decades, up until the 1970s, they were minority voices. This was a small society. Not many people were listening to them because the mixed economy was going pretty well in the 1950s and 1960s and uh, you know up to the uh, late 1970s. Uh,
1: uh, let's talk about the main features of neoliberalism. I mean it's it's a term we all use and very few people have it let's say, have a definition to work around, so they only stick to one aspect of it, maybe. But you talk about neoliberalism um, as having different features, four features. It's an ideology, it's a form of government, it's a package of public policies, and also it's a form of capitalism. Can you talk right. about the main features of neoliberalism?
0: Yeah, I think if you really want to boil it down, and I think for, for uh, listeners, it'd be really important to sort of get it down to uh, a digestible uh, sort of portion here. Uh, I would uh, urge people to think of neoliberalism in terms of a policy package according to what I call the DLP formula. D stands for deregulation of the economy. That's one major feature of neoliberalism. The economy should be deregulated. In other words, the state control should be minimized. States should have only the function of guaranteeing that, uh, that contracts, like labor contracts, will be enforced. Other than that, states should be really, pretty much stay out of the economy. So that's deregulation. Deregulation because they felt that the economy on the mixed economy, on the Keynesianism, was far too regulated. So let's deregulate it again. Let's pull it back. The second one, uh, second letter of that formula, L, stands for liberalization of trade. So uh, the idea was that ideally trade should have absolutely no obstacles. And we're talking uh, about trade in goods, services, but also the flow of capital, of investment. There shouldn't be any tariffs, there shouldn't be any barriers. Money should flow globally in an unimpeded way. So, for example, uh, one of the institutions that was founded after uh, uh, or or during World War II uh, in 1944 was GATT, which really stands for uh, the General Agreement of Tariffs and Trade, which was an organization that was dedicated to cutting tariffs to make it easier for uh, goods and services to, uh, you know, flow around the world. So that was the second idea let's cut tariffs, let's cut basically taxes on goods and services, let's get ideally to zero tariffs, which means that free trade would be established globally. So you can already see, Mortiza, uh, I think, the, the, the global intention behind neoliberalism. Neoliberalism is no longer just locked to a state like uh, you know England or, or, or the United States, even though obviously national governments were pushing it. But the idea was that these principles were global. And the third letter, P, stands for privatization. Privatization of what? Of state-owned enterprises. So for example, in the 1970s and the 1980s, in the UK uh, and and other countries around the world, you had many large enterprises that were state-owned. Think of the mines, the mining industry in in England. Think of railways, Uh, think of hospitals, So a lot of those large enterprises were owned by the state, meaning by the public. And neoliberals were saying they're inefficiently run. The state is always inefficient. The state is bureaucratic. The state is overblown. And the argument was, and this is where neoliberalism is an ideology, right? A sort of a a shared uh, uh, ideas and values that make people want to do certain kinds of things. The argument was that these state-owned enterprises should be privatized. They should be sold off because private owners would run these enterprises in a far more profitable, in a far more economical manner. So this, I think, is really at the very core. So if you think of neoliberalism, think of DLP formula, deregulation, liberalization, privatization
1: thank you that was very comprehensive and um what I really when when I was reading different books about it what I really uh what what fascinated me was was that people like Hayek and Milton Friedman because some of the principles of neoliberalism might be considered conservative and people like Hayek and Milton Friedman didn't like to be conservative they um so how 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 is that why why didn't like to be conservative or is there anything because a lot of conservatives embrace these principles of neoliberalism, whereas it was actually a radical change.
0: Yes, that's a great question. And I think it's really important for uh, uh, our listeners uh, to really see the, the difference here, right? So uh, I said originally liberalism was, you could say, a child of the Enlightenment, of Enlightenment rationalism. The idea that individuals are endowed with reason, that that's a natural law, And this reason allows us to progress in society. So the free use of reason is extremely important. And reason should be more powerful than what? Than tradition. Most of all, the church. Most of all, arbitrary rule of the nobles, right? Aristocracy, kings, queens. So the idea was that it was not reasonable to have traditions that would not allow people to freely express themselves, whether in economic terms, in cultural terms, or in political terms. So in that sense, liberalism was always tied to the idea of the rational individual. Now, what has happened in the 20th century, and especially with neoliberalism of the uh, ilk of say Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan, is that they were very closely aligned with, quote, tradition, conservative tradition, the idea that we need institutions that are long-term established. We need stability in society. We shouldn't change too quickly. Change should be very gradual. Uh, institutions like religion and churches are extremely important. And that in a way was something that Hayek and Milton Friedman uh, did not really endorse very much because in their from their point of view, uh, liberalism really was about rationalism. It wasn't so much by, about tradition. So we need to go back now to the Mount Pelerin Society in 1947, right? There are these people from various walks of life. You have business people, you have uh, people even from uh, church uh, affiliated organizations, uh, you have academics, and most of them agreed with this rational notion of letting markets just regulate themselves and do their own thing. But there were also some who at that time already said, well, but you know, we also need to have certain institutions of stability in order to keep society together. So there was originally already a little bit of a tension. And I think that tension then broke out in the open in the 1980s with Reagan and Thatcher taking the conservative line, whereas some neoliberals were still very, very worried that this wouldn't really go together very much with the idea that reason is more important than tradition.
1: And and, uh, a great part of the book is that you talk about different waves of neoliberalism. You start with the first wave that uh, that was under the conservative leadership of Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher, uh, and then the second wave with Bill Clinton and uh, Tony Blair, and the third one, which was with Barack Obama. Uh, Let's take them one by one. So you earlier also mentioned that it's this sort of ideology took off in 1980s, especially when when leaders like Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher picked them up. So what were the main features of this first wave of new liberalism, and how did people react to it? We know about we know a lot about England, maybe, but well, we don't know much about the the reaction of people in the United States.
0: Well, uh, basically, the first wave that started in the 1980s, as you say, with Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher, were reacting to the late 1970s that were seen as a period of stagnation, high energy costs, high unemployment, uh, great inflation. I mean, if you go back and look at the mortgage rates of the late 1970s, right, you know, they were extremely high, right? And the argument was that the economy was coming apart. This post-World War idea of mixed economy was no longer working. We needed a new blueprint. We needed a new plan. And what was this new plan? Let's go back to the DLP formula. The plan was that markets had been choked to death by social Democrats, by uh, liberals of the stripe of John Maynard Keynes. There was way too much state interference. Let's roll the state back. That was the idea. And how do you do that? Well, you do it exactly according to the neoliberal formula, right? First of all, you've tried to deregulate as much as possible. You try to get regulations, let's say environmental regulations or regulations that were social regulations off businesses why because they cut into profits You wanted to get businesses to be profitable because the idea and i think every listener has heard that was that if if, if uh, businesses were doing well these profits would trickle down to everybody in other words it was called trickle down economics the idea that if you have healthy businesses you're going, they're going to go on and if there's supply and demand there will be strong demand, and that means the wages will be high, and everybody will benefit from that. So if businesses are doing well, everybody does well. So this idea of Reaganomics in the United States, right, that's what it was called, was really called to also trickle down economics. Let's get businesses deregulated, and those businesses that are not in private hands, let's get them into private hands. Let's privatize. And that's what Margaret Thatcher was really, really focusing on this idea of privatization. When, for example, the minor strikes happened in the UK in the 1980s, she was breaking those strikers basically by holding out, by not giving in, because her argument was that we no longer were able to afford, the state was no longer able to afford sort of subsidizing this whole uh, section of capitalist production. With Reagan, uh, you rem- uh, Some people may remember uh, the, uh, you know, the strikes that were going on in the United States, particularly, you know, the, the uh, uh, what do you call them, the, the flight, uh, uh, you know, guidance people, the people sitting in the towers guiding the airplanes. Uh, they were striking, and Bre- Reagan broke them as well. So the idea was privatize what is run inefficiently by the state. The next idea was that people weren't having enough money. So let's cut taxes. Let's cut taxes for businesses, but let's also tax, cut taxes for ordinary uh, income earners. So under Reagan and Thatcher, we saw a significant reduction of income taxes. And then let's cut social spending. The state was spending way too much money on public education, on public health, on all kinds of other uh, costs. A state could no longer afford it. And you can see here, Morteza, that the idea was that somehow states were inefficient and had to be run like businesses. So what do you do when you have a state bureaucracy? Well, you do two two things, right? You cut cut out uh, jobs that are inefficient. Number one, basically you get rid of people. And number two, those people who remain will have to be, working according to much more performance oriented measures, much longer hours, you could argue. And in many ways, they are no longer getting the benefits that they used to get because they're too expensive. So for example, the share of health insurance for many workers went up. So that was the first wave. This idea of really, really restructuring the economy, getting rid of the mixed economy, getting rid of Keynesianism and shifting into this uh, neoliberal form of governance that would allow the economy to come back and be efficient again,
1: and uh, and and that was the motto that the 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 the, the area the, sorry the era of big government is over. I think it was Margaret Thatcher exactly. or uh, well, think no, one that of was, them.
0: actually that that was Bill Clinton, and that was oh, already this oh, yes, yes. He, he said that in a in an address to Congress, hmm. a joint address to Congress in 1996. He said, the era of big government is over. Mm. And second wave means that after Reagan and Thatcher introduced this neoliberal paradigm, even center-left parties, like the Labour Party in the UK, or like the Democratic Party in the United States, or like the Socialist Party uh, in France, or like the Social Democratic Party in Germany, were jumping on that bandwagon. They were sort of giving up the old Keynesianism, the old idea of mixed economy, and they were seeing this as inevitable. The economy was restructuring, businesses were doing much better. In general, by the late 1980s, people had a sense that the economy was doing better. So what happened is that second wave politicians were taking over the neoliberalism. However, the one thing they were not taking over is the conservatism. In other words, Culturally, you could say, they were still progressive, whereas in many ways, Reagan and Thatcher, right, culturally were pretty conservative. So economically, the second wave neoliberals were just like the Reagans and the Thatchers. So Tony Blair was no longer talking about labor. He renamed the party New Labor, right, neo, meaning he took the neo neoliberalism economic part, but culturally, he remained pretty progressive. Same with Bill Clinton, right? New Democratic Leadership Council. He was uh, one of the movers and checkers of this new entity within the Democratic Party in the United States called the Democratic Leadership Council that took over neoliberal economic program. And at the same time though, remained culturally quite uh, progressive.
1: Hmm. So
0: that's the second wave. So in many ways, Uh, even parties of the center-left were saying, okay, the era of big government is over. The era of state-run enterprises generally is over. Uh, The state has to cut back. Privatization is more important. This is the way we've got to go. But at the same time, we are not giving up on the idea that going back to the original liberalism, right, that people should be rational choosers. People should not be oppressed by tradition. Women should be able to have uh, abortions if they so choose. Uh, 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 You know, people should choose their religion. Religion shouldn't decide people's lives. There should be a separation of church and state, and so on.
1: Yeah, and and I think it was in 2002 when Margaret Thatcher was asked about her biggest achievement, and she said, Tony Blair and the New Labour, we force our opponents to change their minds. (laughs)
0: exactly exactly that's really in the second wave in the 1990s is really when neoliberals became dominant and Mm. became an ideology that was pretty much running the west and as we all know if it runs the west in many ways given that uh, uh you know the west still has a very very strong some people call it neocolonial and i i would agree uh neocolonial tendencies in terms of controlling the economy around the world it meant that, that neoliberal dominant ideology was circulating globally. And it, it, now we can go back to the beginning of the interview, Morteza, where I said uh, when I was researching globalization mm. and I found that ideologies were globalizing, they were no longer just connected to particular kinds of states like British uh, conservatism or, or American liberalism. No, they were globalizing But they were globalizing partially because they were all adopting this global idea of neoliberalism.
1: Mm. Uh, What you just said about globalism, you know, reminded me of another question. Uh, We in discussions about neoliberalism and capitalism, there is a Scandinavian countries always come in. They have still kept a lot of those, let's say, the Keynesian aspects of economy. They have very good social welfare, still free healthcare system, free education, even higher education system. But, but it's still connected to that neoliberal or capitalist idea of economy. So how is that, that those countries have managed to keep those elements of their previous mixed economic model, whereas other countries, mainly Anglo-Saxon countries, have completely given up to this idea of free market and neoliberal economy?
0: Well, I would say that there is a, a, a big myth out there that the Scandinavian countries are, are still holding on to the old mixed economy, and they're very different from everyone else. I don't, I don't, I don't think that's the case, and there's a lot of empirical evidence that I can point to, uh, in, especially in the 2000s and 2010s, uh, how uh, the Scandinavian economy has also become very, very neoliberal. In many ways, if you look at business taxes, for example, in Scandinavia, they're extremely low. In some instances lower than in the United States. Uh, What has happened is that the Scandinavian countries were able to hold out longer. So when the first wave of neoliberalism kicked in in the 1980s, and a lot of countries were changing, Scandinavia was still holding on to the old Keynesianism because they had a very, very strong tradition of peasant and worker alliances uh, or farmer worker alliance parties that were called social democratic or labor parties. And those alliances held up until the 1990s. But if you look at the elections in the late 1990s, early 2000s, uh, all of those parties lost to what? To the conservatives, to the conservative parties. So Sweden, for the first time in more than 30 years, we, uh, you know, uh, uh, saw a conservative government take over in, in, in the late 1990s, 2000s. And those conservative governments also increasingly were restructuring the economy along neoliberal lines. Now, this does not mean that certain elements of the old Keynesianism, social welfare net, for example, is not in existence. It is. And the reason why it's still in existence is that it enjoys a very strong popularity even among conservative people, just like social security in the United States, which is a pension program for people over 62, is still in place, even though You know, we had many, many conservative governments. It enjoys great popularity. So neoliberalism has not been able to break through some of these really very basic social services. Yet at the same time, even though Scandinavian countries now are extremely competitive, globally oriented, working along neoliberal lines, have been privatized. Think of Volvo that was sold off, that was privatized. Think of some of the the large medical corporations uh, in Scandinavia that are doing extremely well, that are private. So in many ways, what what you're seeing is maybe a neoliberalism with a human face, or a more human face, or a more social face, but it's neoliberalism nonetheless. It's a little bit like wine, you know. You can choose. You can drink, if you're a red wine drinker, uh, you you can drink Cabernet, uh, which is pretty heavy, or Shiraz, or uh, you can choose to drink Pinot Noir, right? Which is sort of much lighter and, and and not quite as bad. So I would say that Scandinavia is more like Pinot Noir. And maybe the United States and the UK are going, you know, more along the lines of Cabernet or Merlot. Or Shiraz is a case of Australia,
1: right? <laughs> yeah. I'm from Shiraz myself originally in Iran. So I that's the one yeah. I usually go to.
0: <laughs> that's where it's originally from. That's right.
1: Yeah. Uh, how about the third wave of neoliberalism and Barack Obama? How how was it different from the previous one? What was, let's say, particular about his vision of, um, he was a Democrat, but as you mentioned, the same thing would happen with new liberal, new labor in England. It They still retained the, the economic mode of, let's say, the democratic, the, the neoliberal side, but they were more culturally, socially, more progressive. But economically speaking, how was that third wave of neoliberalism different from previous modes?
0: Well, it was different in, uh, and everything goes back to this shock that was delivered by the global financial crisis. So as all listeners know, in 2008, the economy, the world economy almost went down, right? I mean, we we all know subprime mortgage crisis. We all remember, uh, you know, Lehman Brothers going belly up. We all remember Uh, financial capital you know speculations and and almost the entire world economy was on its knees and that's the moment when obama gets into office so clearly neoliberal uh the neoliberal vision had just been hit really badly so what is to be done right so what obama has to do is he has to forge a compromise between the neoliberal powerhouses particularly wall street that's in real trouble but obviously still very influential, still wants to have deregulation, still wants government off its back. And a lot of people who got hurt, a lot of ordinary people, right? They were called in the United States, Wall Street versus Main Street. Well, you remember the 1% versus the 99%, right? So Obama had to somehow forge a compromise between the 1% and the 99%. He had to stay still on the neoliberal course but at the same time, he also had to administer major infusion of public money into the economy, which sounds just like Keynesianism, in order to help out Wall Street, which needed money. AIG, the world's, one of the world's largest insurance companies, was almost going bankrupt. They, they, they needed money. Where was the money coming from? Not from private investors. The money came from government. There were bailout packages. I think everybody remembers that because they happened in Europe too. G20, the world's largest 20 economies, came together on a summit, emergency summit, and decided that it was necessary for national governments to subsidize basically the big capitalist companies. So Obama was walking this very, very dangerous tightrope in a way that he was on one hand, needed Wall Street and needed big business to stay with him, in order for them to stay with him, he couldn't just get rid of neoliberalism. On the other hand, he also needed to help Main Street, ordinary people. And that meant that the state had to take out tremendous loans, basically public debt, in order to finance the economy so the economy would come back. So the third wave was really this sort of idea of, well, we can have it both we can have some neoliberalism, but we also can have, you know, a stronger, uh, uh, role for the state. And amazingly, Obama and others who were doing the same thing in Europe, some of them from, uh, conservative parties, other from, uh, uh social democratic parties, uh, Angela Merkel, for example, is an example of, of somebody who's also tried to do the same thing in Germany. Uh, amazingly, That really pretty much held this this very difficult compromise, third wave neoliberalism, until the mid-2010s. And that's when it really broke apart. And it broke apart as a result of what some people call the populist explosion. National populism rearing its head and becoming very, very powerful in terms of people Being disappointed with neoliberalism, the promises of neoliberalism, the promises of unregulated capitalism, the promises of free trade they thought were not coming true, and they were turning now to voices, to ideologies, to politicians who were saying, uh uh no free trade. We need to protect our jobs in our own country. Look where the jobs are going. You remember, you know, those, those key terms at the time were outsourcing. Jobs get outsourced as a result of neoliberalism. China was rising. China was becoming the production powerhouse of the world. Why? Because the labor market was much cheaper there. So the big companies were going to China, producing there for Walmart, and Walmart was selling cheap goods to consumers that was fine for consumers, but not fine for their jobs. Their jobs were going to the global south. They were going to China, they were going to Vietnam, they were going to Pakistan, they were going to other places in the world that were low-labor places. And that meant that people lost their jobs. Yeah, they could buy cheap stuff at Walmart, but if you don't have a job, you're not going to be satisfied as a consumer because you're not going to have money to spend. So basically, by the mid-2010s, people were increasingly moving to voices that we call national populist voices that were saying, we don't need a world economy, we don't need globalism, we don't need neoliberalism. What we need is we need to protect our own economy. So in many ways, they were going back to a protectionist paradigm that was in place before World War II, between the two world wars, Germany, Nazi Germany, extremely protectionist all the major powers between the two wars, extremely protectionists. Also, immigration, right? From the point of view of neoliberalism, the free movement of people, especially labor, is a great thing because it means that labor will flow to where it's most needed. So why put pair barriers there, national barriers? Let people come. As long as they can find jobs, they should be able to move, right? In the mid-2010s, to, to uh, uh, 2010s, People were saying, what are you talking about? We don't have any jobs. The jobs are going to China. We we need the jobs for our people. Stop immigration. There are too many people coming in from other parts of the world, right? We know this discourse. And that was also linked to national populism. So those twin pillars of anti-free trade and anti-immigration, anti-free flow of people really were the beginning of the unraveling of that third wave of neoliberalism.
1: And and do you see Joe Biden's economic policy to be a continuation of Barack Obama's?
0: Uh, No, I don't see it. As a matter of fact, I see him much more along the lines of Bernie Sanders. And your listeners will will, uh, certainly remember Bernie Sanders twice running for president. And he was running on a populist uh, platform but not a populist platform of a national populism, a right-wing populism, an anti-immigration populism. He was running on a populism that was pointing fingers as what he always called the billionaires and millionaire class. That's the class that was taking away money. They were farming out all those jobs to China. They should be taxed. Uh, they should be held responsible for the state of the economy and this idea that they should be taxed more and those monies should be distributed and jobs should be brought back is what Biden took on board. So he's actually much more of a Bernie Sanders type. And what's interesting is, uh, and I'm not sure if your listeners know, that uh, when uh, Biden was finally uh, elected uh, during the transition, he sat down with Bernie Sanders and his people and took over large parts of Bernie Sanders' program. Like what? Well, for example, the very in here in the United States, the the, the the very controversial plan to cancel student debt. That was Bernie Sanders' idea. He thought it was very important for students to actually not be indebted, because if young people are indebted and they're just starting out their job, they're going to be disadvantaged. So, money from the billionaires and millionaires, from the rich companies, should be taken and redistributed to young people. Uh, people who were just starting out, and there it should be used to cancel their student loans. That was an idea he took over from Bernie Sanders. And in many ways, so Biden then is not so much of a neoliberal, he's much more of a progressive populist, not a right-wing populist, but more of a left-wing populist. He still maintains some neoliberal features. So he's very careful to make sure that Wall Street, for example, is still free in many ways to, to go about their business in, 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 in less regulated ways. So he's not, he's not uh, sort of on board in terms of regulating Wall Street as much as Bernie Sanders would like to do that. So he too is walking uh, you know, a tightrope rope in a way that he's trying to, on one hand, be populist, but on the other hand, also uh, still maintain uh, peace with big business and therefore neoliberalism. So in that sense, we could say that perhaps we're now in a phase of what you could call populist neoliberalism or neoliberal populism, sort Mm -hmm. of a mixture of two doctrines that don't seem to go together very well, but I think are being combined also by right-wing politicians like Trump, right? Think of Trump. Everybody sees him as a nationalist, and he is a nationalist. Everybody sees him as a populist. He is a populist but he's also neoliberal. Why do I say he's also a neoliberal? One of the major policy accomplishments of Donald Trump in his four years as president were cutting taxes. He cut corporate corporate taxes from, get this, 35% to 15% in the United States, and he cut the top rate for the richest Americans from 39.6% to 38%. So this is a typical neoliberal measure. So Bernie Sanders was not a pure populist, not a pure nationalist. He, too, was trying to mix populism and, in his case, right-wing populism, anti-immigration populism, with some neoliberal features that he liked that were in Mm -hmm. favor of big business. Mm -hmm. I think uh, Biden is doing the same thing, except his populism is more a progressive populism, not a right-wing populism.
1: Mm -hmm. And... uh... Your field of expertise is global studies. Let's talk about neoliberalism on a global scale. So what, how was neoliberalism implemented in Asian countries where you have more authoritative governments who want to be involved in the in, in economic decisions or economic um, operations of the country, but this is completely at odds with neoliberal principles. So how, how does it work? But we know that still the economy is more or less a neoliberal economy in those countries.
0: Great question again. Uh, I think there are two ways in which this was accomplished. So let's call them pathway one and pathway two. Uh, Pathway one is imposition. So the rich countries, obviously Anglo-American sort of led countries in the West, by the 1980s, as we now know, and 1990s, were deeply neoliberal. They exported that neoliberal policy package to the rest of the world by imposition. What do I mean? They basically structured much needed loans in the Global South. So Global South countries needed loans in order to get their economy going. Those loans they typically got through the IMF, the International Monetary Fund or the World Bank, but they would only get those what were called economic development loans. If they agreed to implement certain conditions. And those conditions were all neoliberal. Don't tax business too much. Don't spend too much money on social services. Uh, you know, make sure that you allow for free trade. Privatize as many companies as possible that are in state control. And if those countries wouldn't fulfill those conditions, they wouldn't get those development laws. So this was a new form of colonialism that the West imposed on the global South. Not just in Asia, but in Latin America, in Africa, any of the developing countries that really needed assistance had to become, you could say, neoliberal or embrace neoliberal principles in order to get their much needed loans. So pathway one means that neoliberalism spread as a result of the imposition of neoliberal policies by the developed world. Pathway two is neoliberalism developed because it was embraced early on by countries as the only way to stay economically competitive or to become economically competitive. And of course, the perfect example of that is China and India. So what China did in the 1970s already under Xi, under, not under, uh, 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 not under uh, Xi Jinping, but under um, uh, Teng Xiaoping, was to open up. It was the policy of, and this is wonderful, right? Socialism with Chinese characteristics. What did that mean? I know it sounds very strange, What what are Chinese cultural characteristics? Yes, there was some cultural characteristics, but what uh, Teng Xiaoping really meant was neoliberal capitalist principles. So let's introduce gradually capitalism through the back door, because if we don't do that, if we stick with our communist command economy, planned economy, we will not be competitive anymore. We will not develop on the world market. And we want to develop. We want to become just as rich as the United States. We want to move forward economically. Same in India in the 1990s. So what do we do first? Well, first, since everything right in communism, or in socialist countries, like India was also heavily uh, sort of mixed economy, socialist, social democratic. What do we do? We get government off the back of businesses. How do we do that? In the case of China, there was no private industry. Well, then let's create it. How do we do that? Two ways. We create so-called state-owned enterprises, SOEs, that were majority state, but we now open up, say, 40%, Private investment, so it's a public-private partnership. So all of a sudden, the company is no longer just state company, but is also opening up to private ownership. Which means it's going to be run much more on the illegal principles, much more profit-oriented, and over time, those enterprises were then fully privatized. So we, now we have, even though the Communist Party still exerts political control in China, we have enterprises that run purely by sort of uh, you know private economic interests. Second way is to call so, uh, to, to bring about so-called special economic export zones, SEZs. So we would sort of, like Swiss cheese, create these little places in China where the government was all of a sudden off the back of industry, where we could experiment. You call them laboratories of capitalism, laboratories of neoliberalism, which would allow those places like Shenzhen, which is right across from uh, Hong Kong, to become almost like little islands of capitalist production within that communist ocean. So China gradually through uh, uh, these export zones and through these state-owned enterprises, gradually moved more and more towards capitalism, adopting more and more neoliberal principles until basically we are now in a situation where China has transnational corporations that majority are private that are as big as some of the biggest transnational corporations in the West. And we all know that the Chinese economy, that the Indian economy, is closing the gap. And it did it basically by doing two things. Economically liberalizing, but politically, there's still a very, very strong control exerted in the case of China by uh the communist party in the case of india there's still very strong political control by the one of the two major parties depending on which one is the power
1: and is this what we call crony crony capitalism
0: yeah you could call it crony capitalism to some extent but crony capitalism really is inefficient because it means that you farm out what used to belong to the state to your own family members or friends. Uh, You privatize along the lines of what's good for my wallet is good for the economy, which is not always true. So I think crony capitalism is sometimes very inefficient. We've seen that in places like the Philippines and others where it didn't really work well. I would call it more a crack up capitalism because you crack up sort of this communist ocean, you create these islands and then gradually you turn the whole environment into much more neoliberal environment or in the case of uh, you know imposing neoliberalism through the so-called washington consensus which is again getting these loans if you accept certain kinds of neoliberal principles in the global south you basically could call that you know impose neoliberalism or imposed capitalism
1: um... How about you, You earlier you mentioned the rise of nationalism, populism, and right wing politicians like Donald Trump, Trump, Boris Johnson in England. How do you see the rise of this populism and the crisis that came about for neoliberalism in this sense? How are they related? Because these people kind of blame their country's social woes on neoliberalism or let's say on right. this tendency for globalization. But in principle, they're also neoliberal in their economic views.
0: Right. Well, it turned out that neoliberalism was good for two constituencies over the last 30 years, say from 1990s to the 2010s. It was very good for the rich, for the 1%. And remember the movement, right? Wall Street, Occupy Wall Street, uh, back 10 years ago, uh, where they were saying, uh, we are the 99% really go against the 1%. Uh, neoliberalism benefited uh, uh, proportionately much more rich people than ordinary wage earners. So the gap, inequality, and we have very good numbers. So, for example, there's an economist at Harvard. He's actually from Slovenia. His name is Branko Milanovic. Uh, he has very, very good studies on how inequality grew uh, during those decades and how it really benefited the top Uh, wealthy people, the top 1%. So neoliberalism was very good for the rich, but it wasn't so good for ordinary people. It's not very good for poor people. But neoliberalism was also good for a second constituency, and that is the poorer people and lower middle class people in places like China and low labor countries, because they were able to attract jobs that were formerly located in places like the American Midwest or in Europe, and they got jobs that paid them much more than they, they, they previously earned. So what we're seeing, again, we have very good data on that, is that from the 1990s to the 2000s, actually the poverty rate in places like China, in places like Pakistan, in places like India, is actually getting much, much better. There's a middle class that be, is beginning to be formed in those places. So neoliberalism benefited them because they're low labor countries. But once you reach a certain salary, even in those countries, right, there's a limit because neoliberalism is about profits. So if labor costs are going up too much in China, neoliberal investors are saying, well, hold on, let's go to Vietnam because they're still much, much cheaper. I can still get labor much cheaper. So neoliberalism lifts the boats in places like China up to a certain level, but then it sort of stops, right? But still, this lift up was quite important for those countries because they closed the gap, the wealth gap, to the rich West. So you could say the very wealthy and the low labor countries really benefited from it, but a lot of the middle class and lower middle class in places like Europe, in places like North America, in places like Australia, didn't really benefit from neoliberalism. And that's why, since they're the majority in those places, they turned against neoliberalism. The they're saying, it's not working for me, it's working for the 1%, but not for me. But instead of turning to progressive populists, they turn to right-wing populists. As you said, they it's always easy to blame somebody, right? So who do you blame? The Chinese. Who do you blame? The Indians. Who do you blame? Yeah, usually, the people, who are they, they meaning uh, the people who seem to be doing better, who seem to be sort of, uh, you know, uh, uh, moving up uh, in the ladder, and you see yourself as stagnating. So they turn to right-wing populists, like Brexit, like Donald Trump, like, you know, other, uh, 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 Marine Le Pen, who almost won the presidency, who got very close, who got in the runoff twice in France, and, and other places, wherever national populist prime minister now in Italy, who is right-wing. In Spain, you know, it didn't quite happen, but there was just an election. And uh, still, uh, right-wing parties got 12%. In Scandinavia, they get more than 20% now. In Austria, they're getting 30% now. So what you're seeing is people who are disappointed sort of blaming others, whether they are immigrants, whether they are, uh, you know, the rich, whatever, and turn to populists that promise them uh, a protectionist package.
1: And uh, is there a connection between the decline of neoliberalism and globalization?
0: I think there is definitely a a connection there in a sense that uh, certain forms of globalization are declining and other forms of globalization are tremendously increasing. So what forms of globalization are declining? The forms of globalization that typically are connected to the neoliberal idea of trade, right? We are seeing that free trade is no longer as free as it used to be in the 2000s and, and even 2010s, right? It's There's much more protectionism now. There's much more trade wars. Think of the trade war between the United States and China that to some extent is still going on right? So that form of economic globalization related to trade is declining. However, digital globalization, the movement of information, of data, of ideas is tremendously increased. So globalization is no longer about tradable commodities as much as it is about the globalization of data and information. And even if you build a firewall, in other words, let's say China creating its own internet system, it's not working. It's porous. We know that millions of Chinese can still, you know, uh, avoid that and can still connect to uh, major sources. So what we are seeing is that certain forms of globalization that are linked to the old neoliberal paradigm are declining, whereas other forms of globalization, like digital globalization, are really increasing. The wild hard factor here is ecological globalization, Mm. Mm. right? It's increasing and decreasing at the same time, meaning that the world is becoming ecologically a much more dangerous place as a result of climate change. And that means that in order to change that, only global policies can really save us. We need to coordinate efforts because it's a planetary phenomenon. On the other hand, individual countries sort of don't want to be the first who cuts their emissions or who, you know, uh, introduce environmental regulations. Like China said recently, Xi Jinping said, well, you know, we are, we are sort of going to do our own thing. We're not going to be fully under this new umbrella, this global umbrella that relates back to environmental regulation. So in a way, you have a mixed bag here with regard to the to the environment, and I think that's going to be probably the most important uh, question in the future. Because national populism cannot solve the environmental problem, neoliberalism cannot solve the environmental problem. So we need something new. Hmm. I can't hear you.
1: Sorry. Uh, neoliberalism is a very negatively loaded term. Uh I was listening to an interview some time ago, and then somebody said that if you want to be very Chicago about it, we're referring to Chicago boys. And as you mentioned, it has hugely benefited some highly rich people. But what how do you see the future of neoliberalism given that there were several crises in the past two decades and um uh, and, and a lot of people, and we can see the rise of more people going on strikes, demanding more economic equity, especially after the war in, between Ukraine and Russia. So, how do you see the future of neoliberalism? Is there an alternative?
0: Uh, I think the future of neoliberalism is uh, either a fourth wave or transformation. So, what do I mean by that? I think a fourth wave would be a neoliberalism that is no longer focused on what neoliberalism used to be focused on, which is primarily trade, tradable commodities, the free flow of goods uh, across the world, but a neoliberalism that is very technologically focused. And I'm talking about digital technology. So what you're seeing now is that there are more and more startups that are connected to digital technology. I'm thinking of AI, the AI wave that's coming. So in a way, neoliberalism will want to sort of catch on to that technology paradigm. And basically, the future, the fourth wave of neoliberalism would be a neoliberalism that is a data neoliberalism. It's a neoliberalism that allows companies to data mine people, to make sure that uh, companies are free to place their ads in an unimpeded way, uh, that make people more and more connected to the internet, that make artificial intelligence and the internet of of, of things uh, become more commonplace so that we become commodities, basically. We become data mining uh, fields for profit-making technological companies. So that is the sort of fourth wave neoliberalism, if that works. Uh, but, of course, the big if it's the environment. So if the environment breaks down, if it further degenerates, I think a, a digital neoliberalism is gonna have a very, very hard time getting off the ground. The second one is transformation, is that neoliberalism will run its course. And neoliberalism will no longer be, just like in the 1970s, Keynesianism was just not delivering the goods. Neoliberalism will no longer deliver the goods. It will no longer be a sort of a program, a, a blueprint, for how to create a strong middle class. And let's be serious, that's always been the holy grail of all economic endeavor throughout humanity. I mean, how do you create a, a, a class of people that is broad enough to make society relatively well off, relatively stable, relatively uh, peaceful? That is basically uh, you know, the core goal. And my argument would be that uh, neoliberalism uh, is not going to achieve that and transformation would mean that we're going to see a new paradigm. That is neither Keynesianism, mixed economy, nor is it neoliberalism, but something else, right? And the question is what is the something else? Well, if I knew that, I think I'd be uh, you know probably much in demand uh, in terms of writing about it. But my argument would be it would have to be a program that is oriented, towards what, global problems, planetary problems. In other words, a program that can solve global issues. And I'm not just simply talking about the environment. We have global inequality, we have, think of COVID-19, we have global health, pandemic, all of that requires coordination. So I would say that this would have to be a program that is no longer nationally focused. In that sense, it's a little bit like neoliberalism, it's global. But it's not market-oriented as much as it is oriented towards sort of a collective, a public, a planetary collective public well-being.
1: Professor Manfred Steiger, thank you very, very much for sharing your thoughts with us. I absolutely enjoyed this conversation.
0: So did I. Thank you very much. And thank you to the listeners for taking the time to listen to this podcast.